Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to worship you this morning. We thank you for those of us who are in Rwanda that we were able to fly back safely and quickly and be here amongst our church this morning. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless each and every one of us with the words you have for our hearts this morning. And may the words that I preach be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It is so nice to be back with you after worshiping in Rwanda with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be back here at Church of the Redeemer. Seven of us got to join the Reverend Tom Boast from Church of the Good Shepherd uh, as well. Uh, as many of you know, Larry and Lynn, their son Tom is a rector of a church not too far from here. He was able to go over with us to visit the Diocese of Gahini, which is a partner diocese of ours, and to take some time to visit various projects, schools, churches, hospitals in the Diocese of Kahini, as well as to specifically visit and worship with Karangazi Parish, which is our sister parish uh, in Rwanda. This was such an encouraging experience, and one which I believe fits well with the message of the passage in Revelations 19 this morning. Two things stood out to me in my time visiting churches in Rwanda. The first thing was the diversity of worship and culture that is experienced amongst the people of God throughout the world. They speak a different language. They are a different race from most of us in this room, shaped by a very different history, and have a different culture. Worshiping with them, we found out how different they can be. Not only would our one-and-a-half-hour worship service be considered just a warm-up for them, the style of worship is drastically different. By about two-and-a-half hours, they were just getting started. Anna, our communications director, she posted a clip of Sunday worship in Rwanda on Instagram. So if you are interested and have the chance, please do go there and take a look. If you're not on Instagram, please ask somebody who is, and they can show you the wonderful clips that she took of Karangazi Parish on Sunday morning. And yet, in spite of all these differences, we worship the same Lord. We read from the same scriptures, and we are ultimately united with one God through the work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Worshiping with our brothers and sisters in Christ in such a different setting was an encouraging foretaste of that one day which is coming when we will be united with Christians of all tribes and tongues before the throne of God. And I'm sure the service there will last more than an hour and a half. The second thing which stood out to me in our time in Rwanda was the meaning of a shared meal together. Most of us here in this room are used to at least three square meals a day, and many of us also snack in between. For many of our brothers and sisters in Rwanda, we found out that one meal a day is the standard. Even Bishop Anasa, who is probably one of the more privileged members of his diocese, mentioned that he had just started adding a small breakfast to his day. And yet everyone we visited prepared a lavish feast for us. Not a little meal, a lavish feast at great cost to themselves, something they probably could not afford for themselves on a regular basis. One moment in particular which stood out was our chance to meet Pastor Jonathan Munyakazi's family. 
For those of you who do not know Pastor Jonathan, he is the pastor of our East African service, which meets in the afternoon at 4 p.m. in two languages, Swahili and Kenya Rwanda. He grew up in the Congo as a child of Rwandan refugees. And since the country of Rwanda has now become one of the safest places to live in East Africa, most of his family have now returned to their homeland. When we planned our trip to Rwanda, he joined us for 10 days and is now staying for another three weeks. And he said, I really want you to find time in your busy schedule to come meet my family. We were able to go to his brother's house in downtown Kigali and meet his brothers, his nieces and nephews, and especially wonderful, his 90-year-old parents. This was such a wonderful opportunity to share in the generous hospitality that they provided for us. Now, we had a very busy schedule, so we originally planned to squeeze them in between other meetings. Before we left to go to their house, the cook of our guest house that we were staying at asked us, when will you be back for dinner? We didn't even think to tell him no. Uh, we didn't think that much about it. We thought, we're just going to have a snack with Jonathan's family, and then we'll come back for dinner at the guest house. We were very, very mistaken. So we told them we would be back. We embarked in our tour van to go over to their house in downtown Kigali. Within five minutes of our visit, it was very clear they had other plans for us. As Jonathan's brother was giving an opening speech, that was always very important. They were very formal about their hospitality. There was always a wonderful opening speech translated with greetings to us and welcoming us to their home. He let us know how important it was, especially to his parents and his really in particular his mother, that we would eat at least a little bit of what they had to offer. Jonathan had told him we were eating later, but he asked us to at least partake of something in hopes that we would find a little bit of something that would appeal to us, even though it was African food and he didn't know if we would like any of it. By partaking of this meal, it would be an immense gift to his parents' hearts. So after a while of chatting and get to know Jonathan's family, we were all kind of nervous because we were like, well, we got to eat later, so how's this going to work? Two things became clear as they brought out this meal, a very lavish feast. First, to be a guest in their home was a very joyous occasion, and we would definitely be spoiling our dinner. Later on, we still managed to find it ourselves to partake of the food prepared for us at the guest house. Our stomachs were splitting at the generosity of those who certainly have much less than ourselves. But that was very ironic to be, to be there. Our stomachs were, could barely handle all of the food that we were being given. This wonderful culture of lavish hospitalities and partaking in meals with each of our hosts was a wonderful foretaste of what we are seeing in our passage today. One day when Christ returns, we will be joined with all of those united to him at a great feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'd like to take a closer look at the passage with you. If you have a Bible, please open it to Revelation 19. I believe this text has some very good news for us today. The first good news from this passage today is the good news of the Lord's judgment. As I say these words, judgment, I wonder if you sense the tension. Judgment, are you sure that is good news? 
In verse 2, the passage reads, For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. These are pretty harsh words to read. What is going on in this passage? In the previous passage, Revelations chapter 18, we see the, the text discuss the fall of Babylon. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, it says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Chapter 19, 1 through 5 is then a passage in which the heavenly throne room is now celebrating what was just said in this previous passage. Babylon has fallen, and they are now praising God in his power and his holiness for what he has done in bringing down this righteous judgment. However, for us as we read these words, we are probably a bit confused. What is Babylon? What is he talking about? This goes to the heart of the question that many of us have probably asked ourselves for at some point. How do we read the book of Revelation, which is by far one of the most confusing books of the Bible? Do not have time to give a class on this topic, and if you asked me to, I would probably say, no, thank you. But I think many of us have had some experience with Christian attempts to explain the book of Revelation as a perfect guidebook for the end times, a detailed map of what we should expect to come. Books like Left Behind have mapped out this system for what is being said as it applies to the kind of ways in which God will act when the second coming of Christ is near. However, as Anglicans, we do not read the book of Revelation in this way. We do not read it as a complex system of things that will happen in the end times. Instead, we read it as a book which is very much using language which would have been understood by the original hearers as a deep encouragement in their walk with the Lord at a time of great suffering under the rule of the Roman Empire. I do actually have a test this week on the book of Revelation coming, and I don't see Jason Myers here, but he is my professor, so hopefully I pass the test here. As the Apostle John sat in prison under the persecution of the Roman government, he wrote down these visions as an encouragement to a strongly persecuted people. And believe it or not, his somewhat cryptic visions would have been, for the most part, understood by them for what it meant in their personal situation. In this case, for the original hearers, Babylon is a reference to the government of Rome. For once upon a time in the Old Testament, the people of God were taken captive, kidnapped from their land, and taken into exile in the empire of Babylon. For many years, they lived under the captivity of the Babylonians until God brought the Persian Empire, whose rulers were willing to let the Israelites return to resettle their land. As the original hearers were hearing this passage read, they would have immediately understood the connection. Just as the Israelites were once captive under Babylonian rule, 
So they were being persecuted under a similar empire of evil and idolatry, the Romans. However, the encouraging thing to them would have been to hear that this suffering they were enduring was not the end. One day, God will bring down judgment upon the evil world they are living in. The people of God have lived on since then and witnessed more than one Babylon. Many Christians today continue to experience some form of injustice or even all-out persecution under various worldly regimes. And yet Babylon is more than just the corrupt governments of this world. It is the very source of evil, the kingdom of this world, where sin and idolatry have marred God's good creation. As Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. No matter how hard we try, how fervent we pray, how much effort we give, we continue to face the powers of Satan, sin and death at work amongst us. The first day of our trip to Rwanda, we started off our trip with a bang and visited the Genocide Museum in Kigali, in which the mass murder of 800,000 victims in 1994 by an extremist regime are remembered. After thoughtful planning, a select few extremists were able to pull their entire country into a mass killing. Neighbors were killing neighbors. Friends were killing friends. Godparents killed their own godchildren. Family were killed, kill, they were killing their loved ones. So much turmoil was allowed to occur in such a small amount of time. Nobody that was there was left untouched by this experience. Yet, as we walked through the museum, we realized this was about more than just an isolated incident. We were confronted with the human potential for evil in a world in which evil is at work in all of our hearts. None are left untouched. I'm not sure how you identify with this message today. Not sure if you feel the forces of sin and idolatry at work in your own heart or in the world around you. But I think many of us today are feeling the weight of heavy things in our life. As we continue to try hard to follow the Lord, we are faced with an ongoing reality of the kingdom of this world, which clings hard to us, regardless of every effort. And yet this passage has good news for us. One day, the heavenly throne room will explode with praise as God once and for all passes judgment on the evil empire of this world. One day, we will see the Lord bring the powers of sin to an end once and for all. This is the good news. We'd like to draw your attention to verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. This passage has a profound meaning for us today. When these heavenly beings bow down after praising God's judgment, they worship God with the words, Amen and Hallelujah. These words can often be of little meaning to us because we say them a lot. Something profound is happening in these words. God has passed judgment, 
And now they are saying, Amen, which means so be it, and praising God. I'd like you to feel the contrast here to our experience. Our judgment is a flawed thing. None of us in this room are capable of making perfect decisions. All of us are forced to make decisions, to choose between good and evil, and yet we are not able to bring the judgment that this world needs. Only God can bring about the final judgment of evil in the world. Only he is qualified. Only he is capable. So when, when they see his judgment, their answer is, Amen. So be it. There's no more questions. There's no more, but God, I don't know about that. I think you need to do it differently. I think we need to have a different solution for this. Everyone in the room, all they can do is go down on their knees and say, Amen. Hallelujah. You've done the right thing. The world has been put the way it is supposed to be. This will be the greatest relief we will ever know. We are all carrying around this great burden on our shoulders, the burden of judgment, judging ourselves and others, at worst condemning others in our hypocrisy, and at best doing the best we can to discern between good and evil. The true judgment this world needs is the one only God can provide. And when he does, it will be the sweetest relief there will ever be. Later on in our liturgy, after we hear the confession, you will hear these comfortable words from Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we continue to face the burdens of this world, as the weight of our own sin and the sin of others bears us down, these words of Jesus are comforting to us because he promises to come alongside of us, to transform our lives, and in doing so, to bear the weight of sin in our lives. Christ is able to carry us through the trials of this life. But in this passage, there's actually an even greater hope, which is clear. One day he will not need to bear the weight for us any longer. We will not need to hear those comfortable words anymore because he will once and for all remove the burden from our shoulders. One day we will bow down at his throne and say amen and hallelujah, experiencing the sweetest sense of relief possible. I look forward to that day. After this passage regarding the good news of the Lord's judgment, we come to another section in verses 6 through 9 which conveys our second point of good news this morning, the good news of the Lord's marriage supper. Here we find out in verses 6 through 7, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Throughout the scriptures, we find the language used that God is the bridegroom and the people of God are his bride. But throughout the scriptures, the people of God continues to be weighed down again and again. Throughout the scriptures, she is unfaithful. She's embroiled in false worship. Yet here in this passage, there's no more of this. The sin and idolatry of God's people has died once and for all in Christ's final judgment. The burden of sin is relieved once and for all. And so now the people of God have been freed and they are invited to feast 
and celebrate this perfect unity with God. What does it mean that God invites his people to the marriage supper of the Lamb? First, it means that God's greatest, deepest desire is fellowship and communion with his people. Gone are the days that sin dampens our relationship. Just as God originally intended, he will dwell with his people. And just like we learned in Rwanda last week, it is not enough to sit and chat. True fellowship and unity is found in the generous provision of a meal. Second, in a wedding, there is a sense of finally arriving at the goal. For those of you who are married, you might remember the intensity of an engagement, working hard to prepare all of the necessary preparations for marriage, longing for the day when these will be complete, and you will be united in marriage with your spouse. Just like this, the people of God have continued for thousands of years to eagerly prepare for this promised union with the Lord. But one day those preparations will come to an end. We will experience true union with our bridegroom. Third, have you noticed that the theme of a meal is pretty common to the whole story of Scripture? It was an improper meal that tore us from God in the first place. When Israel is taken out of Egypt, it is through a meal which they will commemorate forever called the Passover the celebration of a sacrifice which frees Israelites from the impending judgment of God. In the desert, God provides them manna to keep them going. At the mountain where God provides the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law, 70 elders of Israel are invited to partake in a great feast on the mountain. The law goes on to provide a system of sacrifices and feasts of which are based in elaborate meals that restore fellowship with the Lord, of which the Passover is only the high point. I just want to emphasize this point. For many of us, when we read the Old Testament law, we think, how crazy, how hard. They feasted a lot. That system was full of meals together. The Passover was only the high point of that system. Then in the night when Jesus was betrayed, he takes bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we know through our passage today that when he comes, it will be with a feast which will last forever. The theme of feasting with the Lord is constant throughout Scripture. One could even say it's the glue that holds the whole story together. God is seeking union and fellowship with us, his people, in spite of our sin and rebellion, and his goal is to feast with us, united with us for eternity. This is why at Redeemer, the Supper, the Lord's Supper, plays such an important role. We do not grow weary of celebrating this feast, because in it we are celebrating what Christ did, what he is doing in our lives now, and it is a foretaste of that feast which we will one day experience when he returns. <clears throat> and fourth, we learn that this wedding feast will be the supper of the Lamb. What is the significance of this? We are only at this table, and at that table when he comes, because of the work that the Lamb of God has done for us. 
Christ's work as the Lamb of God is the key to that table, nothing else. As we celebrate this feast forever, this reality will never get old. We will celebrate the work of the Lamb forever. There's nothing we can do to get there other than trust in the completed work that he has provided. This marriage supper will be quite the celebration, and I think this is very good news, which brings me to my third and final point, the good news of the Lord's celebration. I would like to draw your attention to verse 8, where the text draws our view to the garment that the bride is wearing at this wedding. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What will this celebration be like? In this passage, I think that there's an interesting tension, which is apparent. On the one hand, this supper will be shaped by an immense thankfulness and worship of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the one who bought us and washed us in his blood, the one who gave us new life through his resurrection. The celebration of this Lamb will dominate forever. And yet, although we can only come to this table through the work of Christ, although there is nothing else, no work of my own that can bring me there, it is mentioned that the church will be clothed in a garment of her own righteous deeds. I find this fascinating, and I think that this is good news. Church, you have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. By believing in him, you will come to be with God for eternity, and one day, once and for all, he will relieve all of your burdens in his perfect judgment. However, not only that, God truly cares about this hard fight that you are in. He cares deeply about the things that you are doing right now to follow him and be faithful to his kingdom. All of those sacrifices you are making, all of those hard fights you are facing, God sees the work you are doing and he delights in it. So church, keep fighting. Keep working hard to resist the powers of this world and to live in new life in Christ. As Paul says to us in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Church, do not grow weary of doing good. The time to reap will come soon. Keep fighting. The celebration is near. One day very soon we will be relieved of this evil. We will be united with the Lord in a grand feast, and we will celebrate all of this hard work for eternity to come. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and hallelujah.